Thank you for listening to a River Life Fellowship podcast. We're a church family in North Carolina with a vision for people to experience the grace of Jesus, be filled with the Father's love, and to release the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's this week's message from Chapel Hill. So this morning, I want to continue with this series called The Ways of Jesus. All right. And and I don't know about you, but not only do I feel the Holy Spirit speaking to me um, continuously about the ways and mindsets and actions of our Savior and his time that he walked the earth and his ministry. But I'm also fascinated, completely fascinated with this, because plain and simple, I want my life to line up. Does anybody know what I mean? Like, yeah, have you ever had the experience, unfortunately, of reading the Gospels and be like, well, I mean, I'm doing okay, but in terms of really lining up and being the best Jesus that my world can see around me, Lord help. Like, I'm just being like, Lord help me. And so, but I know one thing is true, is the more that I immerse myself in his ways and his mindsets and read in his word, the more and more it just starts to become a part of me. And I know that's true for all of us because that's how this works spiritually and So in the last two messages, I was talking about mindsets. Does anybody remember those a few weeks ago? Mindsets. Um, Today, I want to talk about expectations. Okay. We're going to talk about expectations and uh, particularly unmet expectations. And we're going to compare two Johns. Who are the two Johns in the New Testament? Not a trick question. John the Baptist. He was actually Jesus's second cousin. Their mamas were cousins, first cousins. And then John the Beloved, John the Apostle, who loves him, right? Lover boy, John. I just, I love to read about John. I mean, he's just so, he's just got something special. But we're going to see that in order to get a revelation on the love of Jesus, he had to get beyond some unmet expectations. So we'll do a little bit of a comparison of those two Johns. Um, but when I was thinking about expectations, I was thinking about uh, actually marriage. Because uh, how many married people know that one of the greatest sources of conflict in marriage has to do with unmet expectations? It's trying to get out of your spouse something that only God can give you. It's trying to change them when they were never meant to be that all along. Take it from me, guys. Don't try to change your wife. Because if you do, you'll be sorely not only disappointed, but, you'll, but if you did change her, she actually would become something that you weren't really wanting all along. You see, that's not how it works. But why is it that we have this? It's because we were all raised in different families. Every single person grew up a different way. So guess what? However you grew up is what's normal. So you take that normal into a relationship with another person, and guess what? Their normal's different than your normal. And those things start to rub on each other. I mean, I was thinking about, I'm not going to be, um, I'm not going to be transparent enough to tell you some of Sarah and I's. Okay, I won. Because actually, we were raised so similarly between those two couples right there, my parents, our parents. Honestly, it was amazing. It was a blessing. One thing, though, that was different for us in the first year was, um, and neither one of these are right or wrong or good or bad, and that's the thing. You know, it's not like there's a right and a wrong. No, it's just different. 
So like um, when I was growing up, we didn't go out to eat much, eat much, right? Like special occasions, maybe a birthday or whatever. But by and large, even after church on Sundays, mostly we sometimes we went out to lunch, but mostly we went home to watch football and eat, you know, grilled cheese or whatever, whatever we're cooking. And um, then I married Sarah Ruth and her parents went out to eat like a lot. I mean, like a lot, which was awesome at first. And I was really enjoying it until I had personally like, I don't know, put a meatloaf or a casserole or something in the oven. And uh, Papa calls and it's like, hey, y'all want to go out to eat? I'm paying. And Sarah's like, hey, let's go out to eat. And I'm like, wait, but I, I, she's like, we can put it in the refrigerator. It's good for lunch tomorrow. And I'm like, oh, okay. And, you know, so we kind of had to work this out. Like we're going out to eat. We're staying at home. And that's sort of silly, and it may sound weird, and there wasn't like a lot of conflict over it, but it just stands out to me as something that was very different. How many married couples in this room, you can think of like a bunch of things, I'm not going to call on you, but you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I think in a spiritual way, the Bible calls us the bride of Christ. So when you get born again, it may seem weird if you're a dude, but you actually get married to Jesus, right? You become a part of the bride of Christ. And so when you come into alignment with him, how many knows it's his ways that count, not yours. And that's sort of the repentance process and that coming into alignment with things. But here's what I found. Even as much as I want to follow his ways and the way he grew up, Spiritually, there's still throughout my mindsets, my heart issues, 30 years of following Jesus I'm at now, and I still find these things that it's like, mm, okay, I'm not, I know better than to argue that your ways are right, but I really want my way. <laughs> Particularly when it comes to hardship and difficulty, because I want my life to be happy. I want to be comfortable. I don't want my cars to break down or, you know, what I'm going to share in a moment. I don't want my friends to die. I don't want bad things to happen because I'm a good person. And sometimes if we're not preaching the whole Bible, we can get a perception that come to Jesus. You'll be saved. You'll take all your problems away. You'll never have anything bad happen to you. And then you'll live with him forever. And guess what? It's not the Bible. That's just not what it is. What it does say is that through everything, he will always be with you. The good, the bad, the difficult. He's always a savior who's Emmanuel, God with us. When we suffer, he's with us. When we rejoice, he's with us. When we win, he's with us. When we lose, he's with us. And I don't know about you, but I've come to appreciate that about him. Because when we had a baby who died in a miscarriage, an excruciating pain that I didn't even know how painful a miscarriage was because it's so common. Guess what? He was with us and she had to deliver that in the hospital. When we've had some of the greatest moments of like our kids graduating from high school and college, he's there rejoicing with us. All right. <clears throat> Sorry, my throat's a little scratchy. Too much sports cheering. 
Anna Grace and Lydia had these really awesome volleyball games on Friday night. And I just keep telling myself, okay, go there and clap, but just stop yelling. Stop. And then there was the Tar Heel football game last night. It just keeps getting me. But anyway, um, yeah. So go to Luke, um, Luke chapter 7 first, Luke chapter 7. And uh, we'll look at, again, Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. And it says here in verse 18, Luke 7, 18. The disciples of John the Baptist told John about everything Jesus was doing. Okay, let me, uh, earlier in this chapter, in the first 17 verses, you remember this, the a Roman centurion who his favorite servant was really sick, and, and he got word, and Jesus was going to go to heal this Roman centurion servant, and the guy said, hey, I'm a man under authority, you don't even need to come to my house. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus is like, whoa, I haven't seen faith like this even among the Jews. Y'all remember that story? So he does. He says the word and at that very moment, the servant is healed. Then the very next story was the widow, widow who had one son and the son died. And they're lamenting and they're going through, the, they're carrying the, the, the body. And Jesus ruins the funeral. He walks up. He says, get up. The boy comes back to life. And of course, there's great rejoicing. Now, if you heard those testimonies or you saw the YouTube, do you think you would have any doubt in your mind that this man, Jesus, was who he said he was? So it says this. Um, the disciples of John the Baptist told John everything like that that Jesus was just doing. And so John called for two of his disciples and he sent them to the Lord to ask him, wait, um, are you the Messiah? We've been expecting or should we keep looking for someone else? Now, this is a really, really strange question to me. Because if you remember this guy, John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, the very reason he was born was to be the forerunner to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. And I believe he knew that. Because in, um, if you remember the beginning of the story, I'm not going to read the whole thing for the sake of time, but in Luke 1, you remember like at the beginning of the Christmas story, before um, Gabriel comes to, to Mary, the mother of Jesus, he comes to Elizabeth, Mary's cousin, and begins to talk to her about this baby that she's going to have. And... Um, and I think he's, in this verse, he's saying this to his dad, Zachariah, who, remember, goes mute in the whole situation, you know, all that. But it says that he will be, he, John the Baptist, will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. And it says that when Mary walked in, this baby boy in the womb was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, that was really unusual back then because the Holy Spirit hadn't yet been poured out in Acts chapter 2 on all people. So here we have a child who was literally born into the world, baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And I believe that he knew it. Okay? So why would he be asking his cousin Jesus, who in Matthew chapter 3, he baptized, and the heavens opened, and the Holy Spirit like a dove alighted on him. And John said to the people around him, look, this is he, the Messiah. And he heard an audible voice. This is my beloved son. Why would he be asking this question? I think the answer to that is because things were not as he expected. There was no record of in the prophecy. And oh, by the way, you forerunner, the spirit of Elijah, John the Baptist, you're going to be put in jail. You're going to be sitting in prison awaiting your imminent execution. This is his situation when all this is happening that we're reading. So John's two disciples found Jesus and said to him, John the Baptist sent us to ask, are you the Messiah we've been expecting or should we keep looking for someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many people of their diseases, illnesses, and evil spirits. And he restored sight to many who were blind. Then he told John's disciples, go back to John and tell him what you have seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. In other words, hey, remember Luke 4, 18 and 19 from Isaiah 61? This is it. It's happening. What else do you need to know? And he added, God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. After John's disciples left, Jesus began talking about him to the crowds. Hey, what kind of man did you go into the wilderness to see? Was he a weak reed swayed by every breath of wind? Or were you expecting to see a man dressed in expensive clothes? No, people who wear beautiful clothes and live in luxury are found in palaces. Were you looking for a prophet? Yes, and he is more than a prophet. John is the man to whom the scriptures refer when they say, Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way before you. I tell you, of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John. See, John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets. Although he appears 400 or more years after Malachi, he's the last of the Old Covenant, okay? Because he is a transition guy. He is a linchpin between the old and the new. And so therefore, Jesus makes this final statement in our text. Yet even the least person in the kingdom of God, i.e. in this new covenant that's coming now, is greater than John the Baptist. You may know what it's like to be disappointed, um, to have tragedy, to ask God's God questions. Some of you have heard this story, but um, in, uh, on, July, on June the 9th, 2009, um, our best friends as couples were asleep in their house in a sleepy little town that Sarah grew up in, Mooresville, north of Charlotte. And uh, um, the, the husband, Matt, my really good buddy, he and Sarah Ruth had gone to preschool to high school graduation together. You know, so they literally, anybody come from a small town where everybody kind of knew everybody and like you, you did that. There was, there was actually only one high school there still is only one high school in this district. And uh, then she had this other really good friend, Angel, 
um, that she had met through camp, the camp that she went to in the summers. And uh, after we had gotten together, a few years we had been married, uh, we sort of like, uh, you ever try to set people up? You kind of uh, hope they end up in the same place at the same time. Like, hey, did you ever notice? And so they did. They meet and, and fell in love, got married. And uh, Angel had a, a three-year-old at that time when they got married. And Matt adopted her. Her name's Hannah. And uh, they went on to have two more kids, um, which on in 2009... Um, Naomi was three years old and Josiah was one. He was a baby still. And um, so we had just gone to the beach with them um, two weeks prior to this. And so that's kind of how close that we were. We're the kind of kind of close friends to where without notice, it's like, hey, what y'all doing tonight? I don't know. We're having spaghetti. Okay, you want to bring a salad? All right. And then you show up impromptu and you just hang out. And you have dinner together and watch the Tar Heels win their basketball game. You know, that's that's what me and Matt would do. But anyway, on that day, um, some unknown person who has still not been brought to justice broke in through their garage, came upstairs where they were sleeping with a handgun and opened fire on their bed. And uh, their three-year-old didn't wake up. She was in a room not nearby. Angel was holding their baby boy and her sleeping with him in her arm. And... Uh, she was shot one time and the bullet literally hit her forearm and saved Josiah's life because he's right here. Matt was shot six times before he ever got out of bed. But in the spirit of Samson, he got out of the bed after being shot that many times and fought the intruder into the master bathroom. That enabled Angel to just get up with the baby run down the stairs, run out the door across the street to the neighbors and call the police. By the time the neighbors got there, apparently because of the three-year-old still asleep, which by the way, with that many gunshots, never woke up and was never discovered by the intruder. Um, they thought they had a hostage situation, so they didn't immediately run into the house. Whatever the case, maybe by the time they got there, the murderer was gone. Um, and uh, has never been arrested. We were obviously sleeping in our house when we got a call from the hospital um, by Angel's dad, right? That was the first voice saying, Matt's been shot. Have you ever been woken up in the middle of the night and it's like you're trying to make sense of what you're being told, but it's like, what? Like, Matt's been shot? Wait, wait, what is going on? It's just so unfathomable. Like, how could this happen? Like, there's a... There's a shooter in the science lab. I mean, you guys didn't know where the shooter was at, on Monday. You're just trying to, like, make sense of it all. Matt's been shot. Matt's been shot. So we get up. I'll never forget driving over there as the sun's coming up. The whole, of course, the whole neighborhood's taped off. You can't go near. All these things are happening. And for the next six months, which turned into a year, which turned into almost two years, well, I mean, it never ends. It's trying to make sense, not only of who and how, but why. Like, why, God, would this happen to, to, to him, to her, to us, our entire River Life community? I mean, you can just imagine, we're just absolutely shattered. And the interesting thing about it is that was in 2009. In 2006, 7, and 8, 
We had an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that I preached on a few weeks ago called the river. Okay, I, I say I preached on it. I just referenced it in talking about the many illustrations of the Holy Spirit and rivers in the Bible. But the river of God was flowing in those two, three years. And I mean, cancers were being healed. People were getting saved. Um, all kinds of miracles were happening. It was just like a time of his glory. But besides the miracles, it's like every time we would gather, there was just a sense of presence. You know what I mean? I mean, like thick. Like I'm talking, I would walk in when we met and think, oh, like Azusa Street, this is going to be the day where there's a physical cloud in the building. I just know it. I mean, because it was just happening. And then suddenly, something like that happens. It's like, dear God. What is happening here? So I understand what tragedy feels like. Obviously, disappointment and extreme grief. But you know what I discovered, and not I, but us as a couple, all of our surrounding friends and our entire church community, we realized that even in the worst of the worst moments, we had a God who suffered with us, loved us, and care deeper than we could ever imagine. And I also realized in studying the scripture during that season that it seems as if the New Testament church had a view on things like this of tragedy and death and disappointment that maybe I never really completely got it or I never completely really understood because it's never anything that anyone would ever pray for. Right? You're never going to pray for tragedy. You're never going to pray for an accident. You're never going to ask for something like that. No, absolutely not. But I learned that the Bible actually teaches that when it does happen, because Jesus did say that in this world you'll have trouble. But be of good cheer because I've overcome it all. That when those things do happen, you can put a demand on the seed and God will bring fruit out of that destruction. And I think that's really important for us because there's people in this room who have suffered maybe something either similar or some extreme loss. And God wants you to know this morning that he hasn't forgotten you. He wasn't absent from your grief. He wasn't absent from your situation. But he was near to those who are brokenhearted. And he's here this morning not only to continue to bring healing because I know it really never goes away. I mean, I think in the first 10 years of his passing, I would have these mat moments, which were simply, I would just break down weeping or crying or feel very emotional, sometimes just triggered by, you know, it wasn't necessarily anything connected. I would just have a memory or something like that. And um, in the last three years, I think that's gotten a little less and easier, but the truth is it never completely goes away. But yet I know that Jesus is there to cause his presence, even in that grief and that pain, to arise to where it becomes like a sweet fragrance from my life and not an icky, bitter thing that, you know, sometimes those things often become. And that's my prayer for you as well. Now, let's go to John the Apostle in Acts 12. Um <clears throat> It says in Acts 12, 1, about that time, King Herod Agrippa began to persecute some believers in the church. 
He had the apostle James. Now, who is James? James is actually John's brother. Who was older? Does anybody know? Was it his little brother or his older brother? I'm not really sure, to be honest. James and John, the sons of thunder. You remember them? Two of the 12 disciples. Well, Herod arrested John's brother, and he cut his head off. He executed him. Killed with a sword. Can you imagine the grief, the pain that John and perhaps his parents and their whole community were going through? And when Herod saw how much this pleased the Jewish people, it says he also arrested Peter. This place took place during the Passover celebration. Then he imprisoned him, Peter, placing him under the guard of four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring Peter out for public trial after the Passover. But while Peter was in prison, the church prayed very earnestly for him. Now, do you remember what happened in the rest of the story? Does Peter get his head chopped off? No, the church had an all-night prayer meeting. And they were the most shocked people in the building when God heard their prayer. Because literally God came, and I, was there an earthquake in the prison? And like, his chains fell off. It was a supernatural miracle jailbreak. And in summary, Peter just basically walks out unhindered, shows up at the all-night prayer meeting, knocks on the door and like a servant or something goes and looks like Peter and she runs back like hey God's answered your prayer Peter's at the door they're like nah (laughs) such faith in the room no it must be like his angel or something that's not Peter obviously you know it was Peter and you know that's awesome and we love to celebrate the miracles and the wins as we should that's what we should celebrate. We've got to keep our focus on what God's doing, not on what he's not. We don't want to lessen or adopt our theology to only our disappointments. But let me remind you, um, Peter, James, and John were like Jesus' inner three, right? So he had the crowds that followed him. Then, of course, he chose the 12 to be his disciples. But among the 12, he had three Peter, James, the brothers, James and John, and they were like up on the mountain at the Mount of Transfiguration. There were times where he was going in, I think, to raise this dead girl, and he put everybody out of the room except for Peter, James, and John. So what I'm trying to paint the picture for you is these three guys are really tight. I mean, they're probably best of best friends, right? And now, of course, James is no more. He's been executed. But if I'm John, I got issues with God. Because that's great, God, that you broke supernaturally Peter out of jail and he didn't die. But what about my brother? Why didn't you save him, Lord? I could feel, I feel a little angry. I could feel hurt. I feel like, God, you let me down. This is not the way it was supposed to work out. These were not my expectations when I signed on to follow. Yet, obviously, even though John doesn't write specifically about this, what do we find in the history of the rest of John's life is that he chose love. 
He chose a different perspective because the Bible says that he was the one who laid his head upon the Savior's chest. He was the one who writes in his letters to the church, and God is light and God is love, and in him there is no shadow. He is the one who in the revelation of Jesus Christ in the last book of the Bible He was the one chosen to see into heaven and to write down all the things that were and were to come. This was who this man was. Why? Because he chose to walk in love and refused to walk in bitterness. He refused to have his anger and his disappointment rule his life. I certainly think that he probably had those emotions. You wouldn't be human if you didn't have them. But I also feel like you need to understand that emotions are not sin. Just because you walk through something really hard and you have a bad moment and a bad day and maybe even a bad week, that doesn't define what you really believe about your father. Because you know that you know what your father knows and believes about you. You know his unfailing and undying love for you. So just like Joseph in the Old Testament in Genesis, you know, who was arrested, falsely accused of rape, put in the prison, the dungeon to rot for life. What does Joseph do? He doesn't get bitter. He gets better. He continues to forgive. He continues to pray. And when his Kairos moment came to to interpret the Pharaoh's dream, God rises him out, out of the dust. Injustice had happened, but he refused to get bitter about it. He leaned in to this place. And you see, that's by his grace, because we're no more spiritual than anybody else. By his grace, us in our community, we felt like, what other choice do we have? We know our God is good. We know that his love never fails. We know that he is merciful and compassionate. We know that he did not cause this to happen. And so even as we sit here and if, if Angel, Matt's wife, were to walk into this room right now, you would never in a million years, if I hadn't just told you, you would never be able to guess that th- what I just described had happened to that woman. I mean, yeah, Chuck and Janet opened up the upstairs of their farmhouse. She came and lived there for a year. Um, for uh, almost two years, she could not sleep alone. Like she would have someone, a friend or her parent, one of her parents from both sides of the family come and literally sleep in the room with her because she couldn't do it. And then I'll never forget when uh, she, she decided to go back. She was, her and Matt were both nurses, RNs, and she decided to go back to school to become a nurse practitioner. She actually enrolled here at Duke University for their online program. And I think she'd come here about once a month to the Triangle to come to campus and, uh, as part of that program that she was doing, her uh, clinical hours, she could accelerate if she went to, um, to Tanzania. Was it Tanzania or Kenya? I think it was, it was one of those. East Africa, Tanzania. She'd go to Tanzania for one month to do clinical hours for her nurse practitioner program. And I'll never forget when she told us that she was going to do this. We were all like, what? Are you sure? Like we were thinking like you can't sleep by yourself and you're going to go alone to Africa for a month. 
So she felt, I mean, this tells you about angels. She's just like, she's going to go for it. So she goes and she tells us, they're on FaceTime a lot, her and Sarah Ruth. And she says that it was at first, wherever she went, things would trigger her fears. So, you know, like um, in, in Africa, a machete is just a simple farming tool, right? So there's guys walking around with machetes all the time. And no one's thinking anything of it. It's just a tool um, for farming. But when, whenever she'd see those guys with machetes, they would just be like, oh. And so she would pray. And the, the lady that was assigned to her to help her get to where she needed to go, her name was Mama Grace. And she called Sarah crying. She goes, God is so good. He knows what I need, what I needed. I didn't know how I was going to get from place to place. And he sent Grace along beside me to carry me. And, uh, I mean, they went on safari and slept in tents and had literally could hear lions roaring at night. Around, I mean, it was just like her, she was sharing the tent with a spirit-filled Christian. And she said, we spoke in tongues all night long like, just to get through that night. And she came home, and probably just one or two days later after being home, she called Sarah Ruth one night after dark. And she goes, Sarah Ruth, you're never going to believe where I am. And she was like, Where? She goes, I am outside in my yard by myself, and I'm not afraid. And she's like, wow. God had taken her to Africa and broken the fear off of her. And, you know, to this day, while Matt's murderer has never been arrested, it's almost like, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. I know in talking to Angel, that's where her heart has been. It's not that I can only speak for myself because I would really like to know. It's not that I don't want to know or I don't care. But at the same time, I've been able to come to that place like Stephen when he was being murdered at the end of Acts 7. Where I, can, I just feel like, Lord, I forgive. Have mercy upon this person. Whoever he is, I would presume it's a he. Whoever he is, have mercy upon his soul and let him come into repentance. You know, and I realize that even in severe trauma and suffering, we have this kingdom out of we have a kingdom opportunity. Because out of suffering, his glory is revealed. In fact, Jesus said even of his own death that was coming up, referring to his execution on the cross. John 12, 24. I don't think I have this on the screen. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone, but its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. I preached this same message in Uganda at their Sunday morning church service. And several people came forward to respond. The first lady I prayed for, she had just lost her husband three months prior. She had two little children. And as we began to pray, we began to cry and weep together. And just having this Holy Spirit moment. And, and I, I texted Angel on my way home. And I told her, and many, many other people were touched by the Lord. And, and waves of healing were coming for them. Um, at the end of that service, and I texted Angel and I told her everything that had happened. And the rejoicing in her heart, I think she might have even posted some of it on social media, because it was like the scripture right here. Again, no one's ever going to ask to have your friend or your loved one or someone die and be that kernel of wheat. But when it does, 
it says that its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Another verse that always come to me over these years is, I think it's 2 Corinthians 2 or 3, where it says, had the devil known what was coming, he would have never crucified the Lord of glory. In other words, he actually thought he won when they nailed Jesus to the cross. We all know in hindsight, joke's on you. Actually, the victory was won when you thought you won. So I've always told the devil whether I'm coming to plant a church in Chapel Hill or I'm going on a mission trip around the world. It's like, devil, I'm going to make you pay that you ever thought about laying a hand on my friend. I put a demand on the seed. Matt Stewart, and I say his life will reap fruit after fruit after fruit of righteousness for years and years to come. And I know some in here have tragically lost loved ones. And I would just encourage you, do that same thing with their life, with their memory, because you can't change it, right? But God can use even that trauma and difficult circumstance to bring a harvest of righteousness in the earth. Let me conclude with this and then we'll pray. Romans 8, 15. How many people love Romans 8? Romans, I mean, you can read Romans 8 like once a day for the rest of your life. You're good. But this segment, so you've not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share his glory, we must also share what? His suffering. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. I've preached many sermons out of Romans 8, and I usually stop somewhere around verse 17. Not really, and not intentionally, but it's like I like to focus on daddy, father. I'm no longer a slave to fear, but I am a child of God. I mean, as I should, I like to focus on the presence and the glory of God that I mentioned fills the room. It's going to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. I like to focus on that, but... What, what's this suffering stuff? Because if we're to share in his glory, we must also share in his suffering. You see, one thing that this tragedy has taught me is that the church needs a theology of suffering. The church in Uganda has a theology for suffering. The church probably in the land of East Asia where you has a theology for suffering. My understanding was one of the greatest revivals on the earth is in the country of Iran right now. Isn't that true? I guarantee you, they got a theology for suffering. Again, read the book of Acts. Not everybody makes it through intact, squeaky clean, with all their limbs in place. What are you saying? I'm not saying that we're going to pray for that, believe for that, all that. I'm saying that when you do have trouble and suffering in your life, Remember his promise. It wasn't that it wouldn't ever happen. It's that when it does, he's always with you. He is a God who suffers with us. Thank you for listening to a River Life Fellowship podcast. To get more information, check out riverlifefellowship.com.